Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Perfect cut printed. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Caged In Presents Coppola Connections. Brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Patsyllabus. If you've never listened to this podcast before, what we do around here is we watch every single film in the collective Coppola filmography to determine, are they the greatest film family of all time? On this week's episode, I'm joined by the lovely, fantastic, and downright handsome Matt Brothers to discuss Ed Wood, Tim Burton's 1994 biopic of the lambasted uh, film director, which brings us to our Coppola connection for this week, which we'll get into a bit more in a moment or so, but it is Stephanie Schwartzman the older sister to both Robert and Jason Schwartzman, as well as um, John Schwartzman's full sister. She's only half to Jason and Robert, but yeah, if you're... This is... is, She's got got an amazing run. Check her out on IMDb. She's got a fantastic run of film that we'll get into, and this is one... Please do be warned that we will be spoiling this film rotten, so if you haven't seen it, please do check out the document in the show notes that will tell you if and where this film is streaming. Just like last week, I'll spoil it for you right now. It's Disney Plus, guys. I promise I'm not a shill for Disney. It just happens that the Coppolas love that House of Mouse, apparently. If you enjoyed this conversation with Matt and would like a bit more of us chatting all about Nicolas Cage, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod to find a fantastic little kind of yeah like the old questions he used to ask purely cage based is matt a nick cage fan what was his first and which is his favorite nick cage movie uh that episode was recorded back in april this one was recorded a few weeks ago we we, we get into it in the so i guess all that's left to do is put on an angora sweater a friend an aging hollywood star and round up as many people and as much money as you can to make the movie that you want to make, no matter how bad it is, as we make some Coppola Connections. 
The year is 1994. The Lion King is the biggest film, and Forrest Gump has won the Academy Award for Best Picture. But what were the Coppola family up to? Nicolas Cage was in three films, Trapped in Paradise, Guarding Tess, and It Could Happen to You. John Schwartzman was the cinematographer on Airheads, and his sister Stephanie was an assistant to the production designer. Tim Burton's love letter to one of old Hollywood's punchlines. A man who was voted the worst director of all time in 1980, with his comedy drama biopic, Ed Wood. To help me piece together some stock footage, paint some paper plates to look like flying saucers, and maybe even help me pick out an Angora sweater, is Star Trek detective, Paul Dano welfare observer, and one third of your and my favourite trip. Linked by a word in the title podcast, but today... He is the Bella Lugosi to my Edward. Matt Brothers, how are you, Matt? Hello, sir. I'm well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm excited to, I'm excited to re-record this yeah, conversation. Yeah, here we so are. Let, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's kind of not bury the lead on this and say that there was a, a massive cough <laughs> in, in kind of Edward fashion. We tried to, we tried to get this to work, but... We've had to come back for some reshoots. I think it was back in like April, wasn't it? Because going by mm. my letterboxed uh, logging for the last time I watched Edward, it was April something. So yeah, good. a good time has passed that I've basically forgotten what I said. I have some old notes, some new notes. And yeah, I love the idea that you were almost going to do for a while of like Frankensteining <laughs> together the episode using my original thing and you just filling in your own gaps with little <laughs> prompts here and there, which would have been like a very Ed Woodian way of uh, getting an episode out for sure. That 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 may still happen. <laughs> that, is just, that would be a, a real labour of time and love and kind of care and attention to, to really make it sound as stilted and mm-hmm. like horrible as possible. And it is that thing of, it sounds like a great idea on paper, but like when people listen to it, they go, what the fuck is this? I think ironically, shit? the quickest way around it was just to do it again. So oh, <laughs> here yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah yes. definitely. Um, so obviously, yeah, we're here to talk about a film that is about a director who was nominated the worst director of all time. So I kind of wanted to open up the conversation by kind of talking about that phenomenon of worst directors and worst films and kind of get your opinion on that kind of phenomenon yeah the kind of it's funny like I, it does feel like edward was kind of the first to kind of have that mantle at least within sort of cult film circles and it's interesting that you say that he was only voted that in 1980 you know i say only only voted which was a couple of years after his death wasn't it but but I think it felt like the the video you know the vhs wave and the 80s film scene kind of brought in um, more fans and more people discovering bad movies. Um, and it feels like Edward kind of had that title for a while. And then I think as you head into the 80s and 90s, I think there's so much more sort of schlock and B-movie stuff still being being made. So I think there's going to be lots more contenders out there that maybe not many people have heard of. Um, and then recently, I guess the big one, the sort of new Edward, would be someone like Tommy Wiseau with uh, The Room, which has taken off in a very similar way to Plan 9. Um, but yeah, like it's hard to think because you, you know, on paper it should be. If you're a bad director, you wouldn't get work. But obviously that's not the case. You can't keep some of these guys down. Yeah, I've, I find it very fascinating in this kind of idea of, I don't know, we kind of live in an age where it's fun to ironically mm. like bad movies. Obviously the the room is a prime example kind of 
get screenings around the world that have, and it's retroactively become like this. Oh no, it's always meant to have been a comedy, <laughs> and like this audience participation and stuff like that. And I know that, uh, well, it might be a while ago now that you guys on Sudden Double Deep looked at Troll Two, the yeah, kind of, um, and the best worst movie, the direct, yeah. The, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say out of, out of the ones kind of on the list, Troll Two is up there in one that does kind of transcend the bad movie because you know, make no mistake, it's a bad film, but so much of it magically falls into place um, and is calibrated in a way that it is highly enjoyable. Like, I think the truly bad films are the ones that are just not fun to watch in any way, or mm-hmm. you know, it's a mix of poor craftsmanship, poor story, poor script, poor everything, plus, like, I can't even make fun of it. Whereas Troll 2, um, even more so than The Room, in my opinion, because it it does kind of tell a more ambitious genre story, um, but is just hilariously misguided. And that film, coupled with that excellent doc, Best Worst Movie, kind of covers it really well. And I'm quite excited because coming up on Sun Double Deep a few weeks from recording today. Um, we'll be looking at another one of that director, Claudio uh, Fragasso's films, uh, Monster Dog, uh, <laughs> in an upcoming dog triple bill, which was, uh, yeah, like a monster dog horror film from the mid-80s, I think he did. So I'm very looking forward to seeing <laughs> if it's worse than Troll 2. <laughs> I, I kind of accidentally did some, like, prep for this film and last night i watched uh frank henenlotter's brain damage mm. and uh, i've got the arrow blu-ray so i was watching some of the like sp- uh, special features and there's like just in the way of how like he just got this ramshackle crew together to make kind of these b movies and how they did it on like such a low budget and stuff like that and it kind of like i think he's somebody who kind of I don't know. Without an Ed Wood, you wouldn't have got the kind of Frank Henenlotters and that, yeah. those kind of directors from the eighties, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I th- I think the truly you know worst films out there are the ones that try to be bad on purpose because yes. you know you have that that disconnect there, and it's it just becomes extra cynical. It's like you know you're trying to make a bad a good bad movie on purpose, you know, to make some money, and like you know all these truly bad films wanted to make money on the merits of being a good film. <laughs> and whether it was just circumstance or talent or lack of talent or people involved or whatever it is, because, you know, a million things can go wrong when making a film, um, they turn out bad. But as we see in Ed Wood, you know, it's um, a truly bad film, hopefully, is one that the director intends <laughs> to be good. No one, no one sets out to make a bad film, as they say. And the ones that, yeah, do try and just pastiche something or tick boxes, or try and do something based on, you know, whether it's Twitter algorithms or memes, or or trying to hit a certain zeitgeisty thing, or anything like like asylum type films, which are very obviously cheap versions of other films. They're the yeah. ones that try and out of the gate make it wink wink bad, and I think you can't really sit and enjoy those in the same way because we're all, we're all in on the same joke, and if we're all in on it. It's, it stops being a joke, I guess. It's a weird kind of mm-hmm. like circle, you know, snake eating its tail there. And it's hard to unironically like something that's trying to do that. It's it's a strange chemistry, I think. Like, this feels like the only time I'll be able to potentially talk about this documentary on this podcast. Mm. But there's a fantastic documentary called American Movie, which is 
about this kind of hapless fool in um, America who kind of has that Edward approach of kind of pressing upon family members. Like in this, it's I think it's his uncle or his like granddad. He's like really puts upon him to kind of like juice him for money mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it's a, there's a perfect thing that the, the film he's making is called Coven, but he re- he refuses to call it Coven. He's like, oh man, Coven sounds like oven. Or it's called Coven. And <laughs> so like, and that that is so fascinating because like Edward, it's this thing of like, he thinks he is making high art. He thinks he is the Orson Welles of his mm. day. And that, that, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a recommend for yourself. And if anyone listening hasn't, hasn't seen it, it's a fantastic watch. And it, yeah, it feels perfect to shout out on, on a kind of Yeah, that always comes about. up as one of those great docs. And yeah, it's one I haven't seen. And, and seeing as how much I love stories about people making movies and trying to be creative. Yeah, I definitely need to check that out. So talking about people who make movies, let's get into how you became aware of the Coppola family mm-hmm. as as an entity, as this kind of spider's web of a crazy extended family that they are. Yeah, well, for me, you know, a lot of my film sort of education and formative years as they were was in school where I met uh, Paul Wilson Morris, who's one of my Spotlight co-hosts. Um, very, very good friend of mine since way back then. And he was kind of like this walking library. And, you know, he was Wikipedia on legs before there was Wikipedia when it came <laughs> to movies. And he he was an early adopter of DVD. <laughs> uh, I remember some of his earliest, you know, DVD shelves back in like 2001 being quite full already. Um, so he kind of became my one-stop shop for like rentals, basically, um, to the point where at one point he did have a printed Excel sheet of everything he owned so he could keep track of what was going in and out. <laughs> so pretty much of any type of film, um, it comes back to him in one way or another. So with the Coppola's, you know, I would have probably borrowed uh, that Godfather trilogy set off him, which would have been maybe my first exposure, if not that or Apocalypse Now, because they were definitely, you know, you know, the big quote-unquote greatest films ever that you see sort of in your student years if you're studying film yeah. for sure. So this was kind of just before our college years but i remember doing godfather pretty early and um i've done them again since but i think it has actually been a while since i've rewatched them so you know a proper god uh god almost said godzilla there godfather rewatch is definitely on the cards so when did you kind of become aware that there was more of them apart from francis ford coppola i think it's probably like a steady stream because as you say this family tree is so kind of vast i think you know realizing nicholas cage is in there is like one of the early ones and then talia shire and then through to jason schwartzman and before you know it as as you've obviously been uncovering you know you can <laughs> there's a six degrees of separation between any film and a coppola if you look hard enough um so yeah i think around about the time you know my film kind of exposure was expanding out and seeing films with these people in or made by these people it was like, oh, it all kind of comes back back to them. Uh, Sophia Coppola as well, definitely, um, as an actual filmmaker as well. So probably probably her being the big one, really. Because um, mm-hmm. I think around the time Lost in Translation came out was when that was slap bang in the middle of college for me. So that would have been like, oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, she did Virgin Suicides and she's a Coppola. And yeah, I think between her and Schwartzman, for sure, is when the web kind of revealed itself what's been the kind of like biggest like really they're they they have a kind of link to the family or like i don't know 
like yeah is there is there one that you kind of go how are they how are they connected to the family um i think for a while it might have been talia shy because i definitely knew her through through the rockies of course as adrian mm-hmm. and i probably knew her as adrian way way longer before i realized you know how she was connected or even that she was jason schwartzman's mum because that's right isn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so yeah my my yeah my rocky knowledge came first before that in that case um and then seeing things like all the all the various people who collaborate through wes anderson um along with jason schwartzman um that are all connected uh roman coppola as well for sure yeah yeah well Today, obviously, we're here to talk about uh, Stephanie Schwartzman's uh, involvement. Yeah, one of the lesser-known on ones, for sure. Edward, who kind of has this kind of small but perfectly formed mm. little filmography that she kind of worked in, for the main part, like the art department, well, all of it, kind of the art department, whether it's a set dresser or a lot of the time it's art department coordinator or assistant to the um, production designer and stuff like that, so... From that list, what would have been the first film that Stephanie Schwartzman had worked on that you would have seen? Um, probably Ed Wood, right? Because she was on, she w- went from that, um, not Ed Wood, uh, Edward Scissorhands, <laughs> the other one, the other Ed Wood. Um, <laughs> yeah, because these kind of early Burton ones, these kind of early 90s films, I can't quite remember which order I saw them in. I mean, Edward, as we'll get to, was one of the earliest as well, but Edward Scissorhands, I'm, I'm sure, maybe came a bit sooner. So seeing her her work on there i would say is the one it's a perfect film to kind of be an entry point as well because Mm -hmm. there's so many in tim burton's life there's this nice kind of crossover between him and edward in the fact that that's one of the last films that vincent price would have been in right edward scissorhands and there's this kind of beautiful symmetry between how he had taken yeah, Vincent Price out of like kind of later obscurity and put him in a film as Edward did with Bella Lugosi. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Edward, but before we do that, let's listen to the trailer. Tim Burton, director of Batman, Beetlejuice, and Edward Scissorhands, now takes you to a completely different world the true story of a Hollywood legend, Ed Wood. And- He made movies like no one else. You want to keep moving. You've got to get through that door. Ah, that was perfect. Perfect? Do you know anything about film production? Well, I'd like to think so. He had an eye for talent. I met Bela Lugosi. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the most uncomfortable coffin I've ever been in. No, he's very much alive. (laughs) You flying saucer? He had a passion for storytelling. Get me transvestites. I need transvestites. You're flashy. They want that. Okay. But they want professionalism, so Nick Sandinelli, without losing naivete. What kind of a movie is this? It's science fiction. A heartbreaking romance. Grave robbers from outer space. Grave <laughs> robbers from what? And he had a secret he couldn't hide. I like to dress in women's clothing. Panties, sweaters, pumps. It's just something I do. You don't like sex with girls? No, I love sex with girls. Wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them. How can you act so casual when you're dressed like that? All right, everybody, let's finish this picture. Touchstone Pictures presents Johnny Depp, Martin Landau, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, and Bill Murray in the true story. Give me a hand. Keep rolling. 
of an unforgettable filmmaker. We're making another movie. I got the Church of Beverly Hills to put up the cash. How do you get all your friends to get baptized just so you can make a monster movie? And his legacy that will live forever. How do you burn this off? Shake his legs around. It looks like he's killing. Oh! This is the one. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film. Really? Worst film you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. Hello? So, obviously directed by Tim Burton. Written by Scott Alexander and Larry Kowalowski. I can never pronounce that name. They're kind of a... Writing duo who, again, have like a very fascinating mm. filmography and that they kind of seem to have just picked these really interesting stories of real people, whether it's the people versus Larry yep. Flint or Man on the Moon. Or, or Agent Cody these... Banks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah, a real, a, a, real, a real outlier in their filmography. But like even up until recently, they did Dolomite Is My Name, right? Yeah, so they, well, that feels like, like, yeah, coming full circle for them, coming back to another film about you know trying to get a film made um Mm -hmm. but yeah they also worked with burton again on big eyes as well um which is kind of like that and ed wood are like his two kind of i'd say you know quote-unquote grounded um biop uh, biopic type movies as well so i like to always put my guests on the spot matt Mm -hmm. and ask them to give us a synopsis oh god of the film in question so could you tell us what Edward is about. Well, yeah, so this is set in early 50s Hollywood and it follows struggling director Edward uh, Edward Wood Jr., who um, is trying to get his movies made and he just has an unrelenting optimism and enthusiasm for filmmaking and getting his stuff out there, which slowly kind of gets beaten down out of him throughout the course of the film. And the film is very much mainly about him kind of you know coming back around and 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 realizing you know you got to fight fight for your vision even if um you don't have any talent um because uh, <laughs> yeah that's beside the point um so it's kind of follows him as he gets a job um directing a film called glenn or glenda which quickly becomes a very uh, big commercial failure and so then he tries to independently finance his next picture which becomes bride of the atom later renamed bride of the monster um and it's mostly kind of about him and his relationship with aging, uh, golden, you know, classic Hollywood star Bela Lugosi, and how the two of them kind of help each other out. And in a way, it's almost like a warped Star Is Born kind of, where you know it's about <laughs> this, you know, a, a has been on his way out, meeting an up and comer um, with no real talent. <laughs> so, and the, their paths crossing as they do. Um, but you know, it's a film about about people and relationships and being true to yourself. And, you know, not letting uh, reality beat you down. And, you know, a lot of really inspiring kind of themes here, um, all wrapped up in this, you know, gorgeous, you know, black and white uh, movie biopic about this about this real guy. Amazing. That is a that is a perfect uh, synopsis for this. So let's kind of start off with talking about the cast of this. So obviously we have Johnny Depp. I'm not sure if we can... How, if we can praise him or we have to lambast him, but obviously I like to look at this film kind of at the time when he was very much still yeah. up and coming and seemed, seemed, seemed like he had the whole world ahead of him. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, he's a tricky guy, obviously. And, you know, for all his uh, controversies, I, I find him that he's at his best when he's playing weird. Um, 
almost like a weird a weirdo stand-in for Burton himself in the best of his Burton roles, especially. But here, you know, he's he's very wide-eyed. He's got that kind of goofy, toothy grin, um, like this light voice, a manic physicality. Uh, it's a whole kind of body performance. And he, I think he's really wonderful here. This is definitely one of his best... Um, best roles and completely the opposite of course to Edward Scissorhands which was mostly you know mute and very caged in um, and restricted you know mm-hmm. and then yeah obviously um, Martin Landau so before we talk about Martin Landau I've got this great clip of the real Dolores Fuller talking mm. about Bella Lugosi and Martin Landau's portrayal of him Eddie was not always that up. He had his heartbreaks too. It was a little Andy Hardy, but oh, what a great actor he is. And I just loved the portrayal. He, he captured a great deal of Eddie's personality. Martin Landau, how about him playing uh, Bela Lugosi? He was magnificent. He was just, at times, you could just see Glenn or Glenda, and it, it was almost like Bela was there. Of course, Bela never used all the foul language that was written into the script to make it more interesting for today's market. But uh, he did a wonderful job and, of course, won an Academy Award. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that is is the fantastic Dolores Fuller talking about Martin Landau. And so let's talk about this kind of performance we get from Martin Landau. Obviously, won him the Academy Award in... Uh, 1995 um so yeah before I, i'd like to kind of delve in to mm. see if that was a worthy win but what do you make of martin landau's performance in this film oh yeah he's great i mean this, this is pure you know really juicy support you know classic supporting actor uh part here um playing you know such a iconic guy but in a in a sort of period of his life that we might not have seen a lot of him in um and it definitely kind of is one of those it's, it's quite a uh, well-trodden kind of trope these days because there's been um, a sort of slew of these films about sort of classic Hollywood stars at the end of their life. So you've got stuff like Stan and Ollie and Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool um, and Judy as well. And I think the thing all of those have in common is, um, you know, these great central performances, but it's also about kind of washed-up Hollywood stars basically going to England and having a last last shot of fame through the through the stage yeah. <laughs> life so it's not quite as far as that but i think even someone like lugosi did something similar as well like you know i think you know, he mentions a lot of stage productions in here and i think he did do some stuff in england as well so it feels like at the time this was kind of uh what you know washed up stars kind of did but but he's he's great here like he he, he has chances to go full dracula because it feels like that was very much in lugosi's personality um whether it's scaring kids on Halloween or like, you know, trying out for, for coffins and stuff. So it's very much that role is a part of, is clearly a part of him, but he brings such a warm humanity to this as well. Um, in amongst all the pull the strings. <laughs> when I was pulling clips for this film, like it was kind of the rebel Lugosi moments that Martin Landau has that kind of jumped out to me. There's a mixture of like absolute pay for yeah. that Martin Landau like managed to deliver like when he when he first meets edward and kind of talks to him about like what why horror doesn't work Mm -hmm. now and the kind of like 
it's not it doesn't have the romance mm. or the sexy nature of it and then like kind of juxtaposed to this kind of like really like living the legend and dirty old man we get when he sees a vampire on tv yeah. which is just like yeah I, I i love that moment yeah and it's a tricky part to play because i think as landau said you know you know lugosi was this very theatrical guy so yeah. so if you try and you know ape that too much then you might look like your performance is uh chewing the scenery so he had to kind of make it so that it was the character's theatricality not his own which has got to be something really hard to do where it's like as a performer like you know am i being theatrical and chewing the scenery or am i playing somebody who kind of does that naturally and um but the film gives him plenty of time to play all these parts of the ghost. As we've said, you know, the, the quieter, more depressed side, the theatrical when he's not on camera, the theatrical when he is on camera. Um, and, you know, he, he imbues this guy with someone who has lived this life and has, has seen the ups and downs. And, you know, he's still bitter about his rivalry with Karloff and all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, I've, I've got a clip of that. I just want to play because <laughs> I think it's a real standout moment for me in the film. You know which movie of yours I love, Mr. Lugosi? The Invisible Ray. You were great as Karloff's sidekick. Karloff? Sidekick? Fuck you! <laughs> Karloff does not deserve to smell my shit! That limey cocksucker can rot in hell for all I care! What happened? How dare that asshole bring up Karloff? You think it takes talent to play Frankenstein? It's all on makeup and then grunting. Bella, I agree 100%. Now, Dracula, that's a role that requires talent. Of course. Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the hand. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? Bullshit. I'm ready now. Roll the camera. What's really interesting about that, I find, is how it's juxtaposed with a scene that is later on in the film and kind of Bella is a lot more frail and is um, just about to record that scene where he's like attacked by the octopus yeah. and then has this deep regret that he never got to play Frankenstein and kind of like kind of just has this monologue out of nowhere where he, yeah, he beautifully kind of says, like, I had a chance to play it and I thought it was beneath me. And it, I think it's a really good portrayal in this film of that kind of, it doesn't matter if you're an actor or whatever you do, just that thing, that feeling of getting older and feeling relevant. Mm -hmm. and like, the, the I think the yeah, just wanted to play this moment that kind of really captures that in a nutshell of what it feels like to to get that old and kind of feel like I just want I don't know, a sliver of relevance again. Bella, what happened? Andy, why did you chase them? After all these years, the press is finally interested in getting Bella Lugosi. Bella, those people are parasites. They just want to exploit you. Fine. Let them. There is no such thing as bad press, Eddie. And from New York, he even said he's putting me on the front page. First celebrity ever to check into a rehab. <coughs> <coughs> when I get out of here, 
So what do you what do you kind of like make of that aspect of the film? That kind of like kind of quite a weighty subject that it deals with. Yeah, no, I really love that. I'm a real sucker for stories kind of about really stubborn people reaching a certain point in their life, whether when they're older or just something happens when they suddenly you know, are overcome with regret for having not done things differently. You know, I think it's one of the one of the biggest kind of universal themes is is personal regrets and things we wish we could have done differently and wish we could turn back the clock. And I think I think films about actors in this way can do it in a really interesting way where like on the on one on the one side, you know, it's not that big an important thing in, in all of life, you know, whether somebody had a certain role in a film, you know. But on the other side, films so meaningful to so many people. I imagine if you're someone who has regrets about the roles you've you've picked or the decisions you've made, you might, you know, start spiraling of like what what could I have brought to people? What could I have brought to the industry and the audience and how many more different lives could I have touched? And it's interesting to hear that kind of stuff coming from someone like Legosi and, you know, having having rivalries with somebody who was operating very much in the same space as him in the same kind of horror movies of the thirties and things. Um, and it's, I love that clip as well because, you know, we see, we, you know, we, we hear Ed say, you know, most people are parasites. They just want to exploit you. Um, Cause for all of his kind of wide eyed optimism in this film, you know, he's not entirely naive. Like he gets it, you know, that, that line comes from Ed himself um, showing that he's aware of, of the system he's playing, you know, and it's, he's not just someone who's, barreling blindly forward um, with this kind of very childish idea of how the world works. Like, he often acts like that, but in moments like that where he kind of comes through really clear, he he shows that deep down he does kind of know, know what, what, what's going on, how to play it. And similarly, early on, when he's phoning up the producer to try and get um, the gig early on, he's, you know, um, Dolores says, Eddie, I don't understand uh, why you're the most qualified director. And he says, oh, it's just hogwash, hun. I had to get in the door somehow. And like, you know, yeah. he knows, you know, just just say what you got to say. It's a fake it till you make it movie. And I think those kind of, those kind of themes really, really speak to me because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be creative myself and I'm always been trying to, you know, push like a, a kind of screenwriting career and filmmaking career. And you're, continuously questioning like are you any good have you had you know have you blown opportunities have you missed opportunities and I think seeing someone like Ed just kind of do what needs to be done to get in the door and then you know throughout the film he he kind of gets beaten down and beaten down to the point where you know he's he's battling those producers at the end and it all swings around with that meeting with Orson Welles and it's like yeah you know your, your vision is worth fighting for um because it's yours and uh yeah, I think it takes an enormous degree of self-confidence um, to do that. And I think that's what we're all looking for, really. There's a great moment that um, really captures kind of Eddie's spirit in the way that he kind of is happy to... Well, for him, he doesn't see people on their downward trajectory. He just, like, I don't know, there could there could obviously be an argument of, like, the exploitative nature of that, because obviously the people he kind of surrounds himself with whether it's like vampira or tor johnson or mm-hmm. bella lugosi himself that they are people who are on the yeah the downward slope of their career and he kind of swoops in and gets them in his film but it's it, yeah th- this i think perfectly uh it's delivered by um patricia arquette's character kathy o'hara kind of mm. really sums up kind of 
the sweetness of Eddie. You should feel lucky. Eddie's the only fella in town who doesn't pass judgment on people. That's right. If I did, I wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I was just about to quote that line for that bit. That's it. <laughs> it, it is that kind of like he just sees people as yeah, as much as there is like an opportunistic nature to him, but like at the same time, it's it's heartwarming that he takes on these people who are somewhat I don't know like the misfits of filmmaking, and like they get to. They get to, yeah, they get to make these somewhat fascinating films. Like I hold my hands up, I should probably should have, but I've never seen an Ed Wood film and it's kind of like it's there on my list. I kinda of waiting yeah. for a, a screening somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Plan Nine Out of Space feels like needs to be seen on the big screen. <laughs> well that's it. I feel like you know, if you find your tribe, as they say, and find your people, like people who if if they're not you know as light minded as you like they're people you can work with and and you enjoy being around I think it makes the whole thing so much easier um, and yeah I think I've only seen Plan Nine I did watch it I think not long after an earlier rewatch of this and yeah the the recreations of it later in the you know the third act of this film really hit the nail on the head um, and yeah it is hilariously bad <laughs> <laughs> but very charmingly so that's it like charm is a hard thing to fake or you know create in in films i think i think people can smell cynicism a mile away you know as i kind of touched on and and there's it's definitely full of charm that film we do get elements to see that eddie is manipulative and can be quite conniving at times i think uh there's like the kind of interactions he has with uh, juliet landau's loretta king and the kind of the mm. way he the way he will bend to other people's wills just just to get his film made where he kind of like trying to offer her a small part in a film because he kind of gets a glimpse that she may have money and then before he knows it like she's starring in yeah the like the, his yeah next picture. and dolores is just hurling plates yeah, at him yeah. um, <laughs> this was my part so dolores obviously played by sarah jessica parker um what do you make of, of her performance in this film She's great. I think Sarah Jessica Parker had a really interesting run through the late 80s and early 90s. Because um, I think I think once Sex and the City kind of made it big, people forgot that she was in so much good stuff. Um, um, and, you know, it's things like Honeymoon Vegas with Kate and like, you know, and, and uh, Hocus Pocus, of course. And, you know, mileage will vary on a lot of these projects, but they're, they're, she, they're very good performances from her in all of these. Um, through you know to here and a mars attacks with tim burton again and a couple years after um i think she was a really you know interesting uh actor back then especially and uh i wish you know more people had kind of taken her on in stranger kind of parts um because yeah once i think sex and the city kind of made it big she was very much seen as kind of you know like a sort of rom-com uh kind of lead um which was a lot of her movies after after sex and the city um, but yeah, I think she's a great like character yeah. actor, and she fits in great with this kind of you know misfitty cast. I've, here. I've always been interested to kind of know if this is the film that stemmed the like the kind of uh, playground insult of Sarah Jessica Parker that she has a horse face because we get in that kind of opening scene when Ed's play has has performed, and the review says like she's she's got a horse face, <laughs> yeah. and I, I, I like. From what I remember, it's definitely a joke on 
family guy or something like that. Feels like I definitely should have pulled a clip yeah. found that as a clip. It came up somewhere, yeah. And and similar joke as well, because I've been um <laughs> rewatching a lot of scrubs recently because of the uh Fake Doctors Real Friends rewatch podcast, which is very fun with Zach and Donald and um and one of the big kind of jokes in an episode of that is JD writing a script called Doctor Acula. And uh, they're talking about it on the podcast as if it's this, like, you know, hilariously unique Scrubs gag. And then, you know, seeing it literally in Ed Wood with, um, in one of his kind of failed pitches, just like, Dr. Acula, yeah, 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 yeah. get it? <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Um, I've got some bad news about Sarah Jessica Parker, though. Uh, again, let's go to Dolores Fuller to kind of get her opinions mm. on Sarah Jessica Parker. That was the only thing I didn't like about the Ed Wood movie. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker smoked all the time and I never would smoke and she didn't contact me here she's playing my life and she didn't bother to do any research and uh, when she was asked on uh, David Letterman's show uh, by David Letterman well what's Dolores like is she still alive what, she, what did she do with her life? She turned her head because she didn't want to give me any airtime. She says, I'm going home and have a ground glass cocktail. You know, just ornery. Mm-hmm. So obviously, yeah, like uh, the, we, can, we can understand maybe why Kim Cattrall has not come back for the new season of Sex and the City. <laughs> No research. It's got to be so hard to you know, play a real-life person who's still around and to hear them kind of criticize you. And, yeah, you know, I'm sure there's like a million decisions going on. Like, um, you know, maybe the smoking was just part of the 50s Hollywood aesthetic. You never know. But, yeah, um, yeah if she did kind of skimp on the research and knowing that the real person's still about. But, you know, there's, yeah, it's it takes a village to make a film and there might have been a very specific kind of semi... Because there's obviously semi-fictionalized elements to most people in, in films like these um but uh yeah that's that's, that's got to be tough yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, um, <laughs> she actually talked about um the time like she met her as well as well it's kind of like again like another disparaging moment of like this isn't the sarah jessica parker bashing podcast it's just that i kind of wanted to i don't know like I, it feels like a film where it's like oh they're they're no longer cool to talk about they're no longer cool to talk about uh i'm not trying to do that this isn't a cancel hour with petrus well yeah well i was trying to think like is there some is there someone else who's been publicly lambasted by the real life counterpart that they've played someone who's just like i absolutely hated what they did with this like i'm sure there's some examples actually there's definitely Um, to kind of keep it in the world of the coppola family i know that the real life jean laroche um does not like Mm. the portrayal of him by Christopher Cooper in adaptation, which I don't understand. That's like an Oscar winning or at least Oscar nominated performance. I think it's yeah, Oscar Oscar winning performance by Chris Chris Cooper, like as John LaRoche. But yeah, he's he's kind of that's not like but I think that stems back yeah. to the book itself as well. Like that's not me. Like I'm not I, I, I'm not as bad as it portrays me to be. <laughs> well we were saying about, you know, Landau winning the Oscar. I'm just looking at the other nominees that year, as we were saying, and uh, the one that stands out is obviously Sam Jackson as Jules in Pulp Fiction, um, which you know none more iconic than that, really. But then 
Chaz Palminteri for Bullets Over Broadway, Paul Schofield for Quiz Show, and Gary Sinise for Forrest Gump. I mean, for, Gary Sinise is very good in Forrest Gump, but I'm I'm happy with uh, Landau winning that year for sure because you know Jackson is uh, he's he's kind of like Cage, isn't he? Where he's in a hell of a lot of stuff, um, but he he's always he's always given it 100 percent, and uh, when he's good, he's great. And if you you know you can easily grab about 20 out of his 100 credits that are like five-star films or performances well i think it's the thing with sam jackson i've heard it kind of talked about on other podcasts whether it's like the the, uh the rewatchables or like the big picture they've kind of like talked about the idea of is that the like looking through his whole filmography is that the one he deserved it for it's like that kind of martin scorsese Mm. thing where it's like he should have won for like goodfellas or raging ball yeah is he gonna end up with basically a you know a a lifetime achievement award but for you know an actual role when it's like oh this yeah, is his or, one for such and such or, yeah or is he going to kind of get like i don't know black smoke uh, black black snake moan like two win wins him an academy award because they messed yeah. up all those years ago um so kind of looking further down the cast list as well it kind of feels like there's a couple of other people we kind of really need to to shine a light on one of them is patricia arquette who is in this film for I, I, yeah i always forget she's in it every time i watch <laughs> yeah she kind of has this i don't know turns up in like the last 45 minutes but leaves like a a really mm-hmm. beautiful impact on it what do you make of the way that she kind of plays yeah Mara? it's it's lovely she's she's so uh, effortlessly kind of sweet in this and and their first date on the uh, on the ghost train at the fun fair is fantastic you can see edward you know building up to try and tell her you know his secret like straight away that he likes to dress up in women's clothes and she immediately is kind of just like cool and uh, from that moment on you know they're going to they're going to get each other and she's just a wonderful support for him uh, throughout the rest of the film and the rest of his life by the sounds of it um uh, in a way where you know there isn't the extra baggage of her also being an actress and and wanting a part like Dolores was, um, and I think it's once she shows up on the scene that kind of gives Ed the kind of strength to really push forward as well. Um, I missed all of that. The internet went a bit funny. I do apologise, Matt. All good. <laughs> um, yeah. What 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 was it you said? Like the the internet like messed up, and I didn't hear a word of that. Oh, just that she's yeah, she's really she's really sweet and a real great support for Ed from that point on, and she's not um, burdened by you know wanting a role like Sarah Jessica Parker was, uh, Dolores was, um, and the moment you know she uh, accepts him as who he is, which is very early on, um, you can tell that yeah, he's going to have the strength to kind of push through the rest of the story. Yeah, I love the moment that they meet, like when they kind of in that. Um in the waiting room of the hospital that Bella's been committed mm. to. I'm a director, writer, actor, and producer. Ah, oh, come on. Nobody does all that. Oh, yes, they do. Two people. Orson Welles and me. Wow. What you making? Booties for my father. Gets cold in the hospital. Mm. Has he been here long? This is my 13th pair. Excuse me. So yeah, I think like that. That it's just this kind of. I think it's what makes Patricia Arquette so like magnetic to watch. Is this 
she can deliver these very well in the 90s especially she either delivers these very sweet and kind of like airy performances or she was kind of like amazing at like screaming a lot of the time and like it's kind of like what one end or the other i guess that's why her and cage might have made like the perfect couple right (laughs) it's yeah she can really sell lines like i'm I'm making booties for my father (laughs) just like that's the most innocent kind of introduction ever like making little booties for my sick dad in hospital (laughs) and there's that whole element as well that obviously like her and uh, Dolores Fuller, like the characters, look very, very similar. Like I'm not sure. Like I, I, I'm, not, I'm almost like not sure what like that, that Tim Burton is trying to tell us with that. Whether it's just like a kind of Edward has very much got a type, or if it's like a thing of like they actually did just look look similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's very, very interesting, and um. Yeah, I mean, they're great. And it's interesting that, you know, Arquette and uh, Sergio Capal don't really share any scenes as well. It's kind of like once one's out, one's in. And it really is like the polar opposite of what, what he needs and, and who who she is as well. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the final person really to kind of talk about on this cast list is the one and only Bill Murray. <laughs> Mr. Bunny, Vibroth, I heard you were becoming a lady. Oh, that... Mexico was a nightmare. We got in a car accident. He was killed. Our luggage was stolen. The surgeon turned out to be a quack. If it hadn't been for these men, I don't know. How I would have survived. So, Bill Murray is kind of, he seems to be the only one who is playing this like a broad comedy. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, say again, you went a bit slow there. No worries. I think it, uh, yeah. Um, Bill Murray seems to be the only one who's playing this like a broad comedy. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, he's given it all, all his Bill Murray. And I think, I think, you you know, he must really love these kind of parts where he can kind of sink into an ensemble a bit. And I think in some, you know, Wes Anderson films, he obviously gets a bit of this as well, where he can just rock up and be an element, you know, a version of, of Bill Murray as we kind of know and love him in a, in a film while still, you know, playing a very specific character, very specific, you know, real person. Um, and it's great to see him kind of in this period, like, you know, acting alongside Depp. And, you know, I'd love to see Bill Murray in another Tim Burton film because, you know, Burton's definitely known for, for reason actors and especially certain people within certain periods. So this was kind of beginning the period of of him and Sarah Jessica Parker with Mars Attacks as well, and Lisa Marie, all the way through to Plant the Apes. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to picture Bill Murray in some of his other current films, which is tough to do. But yeah, I'd love him to to reteam again now. Well, it, it very much feels like a kind of down period of Bill Murray's career somewhat. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of, I don't know, the 90s is quite a interesting one. Obviously, like 
93 he had had groundhog day but kind of like before then do you know what I mean like he's doing these films that yeah are, yeah i don't know and would go on to yeah i think do some... i think mid 90s for him yeah you're right i think i think 93 groundhog day is a huge hit and then if you count you know getting back around to rushmore in 98 as not necessarily a big hit of course but you know a big part for him and a great film um so the the, the rest of that mid 90s period is is tricky to kind of think of for murray because it's yeah coming right after the kind of crescendo of that great run from the mid 80s through to early 90s um so and yeah, bill murray's character so bunny um bunny beckenridge feels like a perfect jumping off point to talk about one of the issues that this film tackles really well and that is of like transvesticism and like transgender issues and well and it feels like not just in the aspect of the time period in which it was made, but the time period it was set. So it was very like a very progressive film, right? Yeah, well it's obviously, you know, these these things were obviously, you know, big back then, big now, and in the nineties um so you know, it's a nineties made film about a fifties era, and it does feel very kind of um like accepting and upfront about a lot of this because you can definitely picture a version of this film that maybe focuses more on Ed's alcoholism, which is basically completely excised here and kind of hide more of, of that element of, of his life, of his character. Um, but I'm glad they kind of highlight it here. And, and yeah, you do get various shades of everything here with him admittedly being like a transvestite and, and liking to, to dress up and, and Bill Murray being the one wanting to have the sex change. Um, and I think it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, you know, I'm probably not the one to say really, but it's, you know, I don't think it goes too hard on highlighting these kind of people as like a, as like the outsiders or othering because everyone involved here is kind of within this group of, you know, quote unquote weirdos that Ed surrounds himself by. So there's a lot of acceptance in the film. And I think it's quite telling, you know, that Dolores at one point is like the only one who seems to have like an issue with it as he points out on set and it's it's so great to see Depp really kind of revel in in Edward's moments where he feels most comfortable dressing up like when he's getting stressed out trying to make a uh, plan nine and he you know he comes back out in in the women's clothes and uh it's great yeah and I think like there's that moment when Dolores like finally decides to leave Ed it's kind of like I only stuck about with you for the picture and now it's over and it's like and obviously yeah. he's he's kind of like surprised the cast and crew by dancing as like a kind of belly dancer and stuff like that and it's yeah i think that's a perfect moment of uh encapsulating kind of how accepting this group of people are that they are this band of misfits and stuff like that and the fact that it is yeah it seems like the one person who is against the kind of him cross-dressing or kind of the, the idea of the other is dolores fuller so she's kind of like very much like if there is a villain to this piece it is kind of her to some degree like not that this film really like deals with like good guys and bad guys it's kind of just like here's what happened to some degree yeah i think it explicitly makes dolores um the outsider of that group you know for for her lack of um uh like empathy and, and acceptance there you know she starts out being kind of his only person really and then as it goes on he he surrounds himself more and more with this team and you you know you've got like vampire on tv and lugosi this weird old horror guy and 
this like you know big wrestler and, and Bill Murray and everybody else there. Um, and I think Dolores slowly realizes that you know she's the outsider here and she doesn't fit in. I think that makes it easier for her to to sort of leave him. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting switch going from her being his 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 kind of main rock at the start to being someone who you know maybe never really knew him at all or or at the very least you know doesn't accept him and wants him to change and as we've said you know so much of this film is about accepting who you are and being proud of who you are and um you know pursuing what you want to pursue and so you know if you're not if you're not with someone you're against them and and even though she does get the short stick for sure when she you know gets bumped off that lead role and has to just slum it as the uh file clerk um, you know, she starts to become, you know, a bit nasty with it all. And yeah, some of her and uh Juliet Landau's um barbs are very are very funny. So is there any particular scenes that like really stick out to you that you kind of feel like we should chew over and like um I don't know. Yeah, get the meat off the bones of. I think definitely the Orson Welles encounter, mm-hmm. which is kind of the the crux of the whole thing. You know, he's he's in the middle of making the film which is the one he'll be remembered for as he points out and and you know it's surprising to see um because you could easily probably do an edward film that's all about the making of plan nine but that only really comes in in the last kind of 30 40 minutes um and it you know it finds him at his kind of lowest ebb and i love the idea because you know this was a fictionalized invention of these two meeting of you know the worst director in the world meeting the best director in the world (laughs) and immediately just having common ground and you know he's surprised to hear but even Orson Welles has to deal with producer notes and people wanting different cuts. And, you know, when, you know, when he points out, you know, a vision is, is worth kind of fighting for. Um, yeah. What does he say? Yeah. Is it all worth it? It is when it works. Yeah. Um, it just kind of sums it up perfectly. And it's showing that, you know, the end quality, the end result of something is kind of beside the point when you're the creative making something at a point when that's still in flux, you can have somebody, like you know the great Orson Welles chat to the derided Edward, and they're on you know they're they're equals they're on the same page and I think it's a great kind of it's almost like a Deus Ex Machina for the film to be like okay Ed's you know spiraling he's in trouble let's just quickly have him run to a bar meet Orson Welles and get re inspired and go back yeah. and finish the film but it, it's a testament to the film that it works so well and uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is so great in that little cameo. Uh, with Maurice Lamarche dubbed in as as Orson, <laughs> who yeah is forever the greatest Orson Orson voice. Um, his, his recreations of his frozen peas and drunk wine adverts are incredible to behold. <laughs> that, that scene holds possibly like what or like the key to the whole thing, and like mm. the fact that Orson Welles mentions Don Quixote, and like both of them feel like these Don Quixote characters chasing after these windmills of success whatever that may be whether it's like yeah awesome wells trying to follow up the early success of citizen kane or just kind of edward trying to get a success entirely and it's kind of like i like that on rewatch like you get that kind of and and i don't know it is that kind of thing where you're like i know who don quixote is like oh that's a <laughs> that's a nice little layer to it but like yeah i think yeah. i think that that scene very much like you you stated kind of it's totally picked out of the air but like i think it makes the film so beautiful for that for that for that scene to like kind of yeah i don't know tell us and that's that, that's what they're all after they're, they're and we're yeah. all the bloody same 
And I think that's what makes Burton such a great match for this because, you know, he really needed to be the one to make this as, you know, he was a Wood, a wood fan. Well, you know, he, he understood where he was coming from. You know, he had the same relationship with Vincent Price as he had with Lugosi. And I feel like other people making this film could have easily highlighted more of of how shit Edward was as a filmmaker. Whereas here, Burton has, has real empathy for this creative who just wants to create. And I think that also well seen goes a long way to kind of proving that because, you know, you know, writing it a different way, you could have him walk in and make it be more more mean, or or Wells could have been someone who, you know, you do more to highlight the fact that he's the greatest director, yeah. Edward's the worst, and Orson could be more antagonistic or or deriding him, and it could have gone another way, you know, where Edward getting to meet his hero essentially and getting sort of slammed for it and ridiculed and humiliated could have pushed him back into finishing the film out of spite, you know, but. But by having it this way and having Wells immediately, you know, he doesn't know who he is or anything, but he's he's immediately just, he senses another, you know, a like-minded filmmaker and, and they can relate ever so briefly on the commonalities of the difficulties of making the film because it is hard no matter who you are. And, um, you know, I, and I love these type of films, as I think I said, you know, about movie making because so much of them are about, like, the underdog, um, films like... Um, the Disaster Artist and Bowfinger and Dolomite is my name, as we've said. And also Brigsby Bear, great <laughs> indie from a few years ago, kind of about, you know, the joys of creating with friends and the importance of storytelling. Um, and I just I just see a lot of myself in a lot of the characters in these films of just trying, you know, striving to do something that ultimately might not even be that important or worthy of your time and money for everyone involved doing it, but seeing like a vision through. Um, and it's funny because, yeah, filmmaking's, Filmmaking's tough. So like, you know, a few of brief stories on my own, you know, I made a bunch of, you know, short films when I was a teen back with Liam and Paul from Spotlight. And, um, you know, seeing Edward in these films, you know, run away because they don't have permits and that. So and like, or doing one take and just having to leg it like rings so true. Because, yeah, some of the films we made as teens, I remember we we're making a film in the center of Bournemouth. And it was meant to be sort of like the end of the world with nobody about. So we'd pulled an all-nighter and we went down into Bournemouth Town Square at like 3 a.m. on a July Sunday. So the sun was up or coming up and there was nobody about. We were getting all these amazing shots. And then this like police car kind of rolls around and we've got Liam like with a baseball bat, like stuck in, Paul stuck in a shopping trolley that we're using as a dolly. Um, and uh, and just, just running around trying to get what we can. And then... Still there? The the internet. The, yeah, the internet fucked up. I, I, I missed all of that. Obviously, I will hear it in That's the... That's right. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll just carry on. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, and then recently... So this is, you know, just to highlight how tricky this all is. I've been trying to make... <laughs> I've been trying to make a little short film this summer. It's like two minutes long. I've scaled it back as much as I can. So it has a crew of two, me and the camera guy, editor, everything else, and a cast of two. I was like, right, four people, I can do this. It's great. But it's a little comedy set in like a, a park in summer, so needed good weather. Obviously, we've had the worst summer ever for weather. So that was one <laughs> thing. And then one thing after another just kept happening with like schedules. And we got like a shoot date down, which was like randomly this Thursday that did have good weather and either side of it was rain. But on the morning of like we had, you know, someone had to pull out for, uh, you know, personal reasons and things. And it was, it was, it was stressful. And like to this, you know, time of recording, I've been trying to get this one little film done and we're having to push again and again for 
sometime in middle of September. So I'm hoping we get like a Indian summer heat wave to help us through. But this is just a perfect example of of how hard it is and how much you need everybody to want it as much as you do to be to be free, especially if you know it's so small you're not paying anyone, of course. Um, and you know, yeah, no matter how small something is, everyone needs to have at least some of your passion. Um, and yeah, I hope I can get this done still. I have my fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely, it's definitely that, that thing of, um, I don't know, like everyone like coming together and it's very much again, to link it back to what I said about, uh, Frank Hennon Lotter, like looking at brain damage, they kind of had that thing of like, someone says like, uh, like, low budget stuff's not made by committee almost there's almost got to be like this driving visionary force who kind of like wants like ne- like knows how everything's going to going to work out because otherwise you're never going to get the film actually finished if like you're yeah you're, you're <laughs> chatting about stuff you've got to have that person to take charge and i like that i don't know you kind of it's there's humor throughout this film and the fact that like Edward's like incompetent to some degree, like a lot of the time he'll be like, they definitely need another shot. Like when it's kind of like, but he goes, no, let's, let's go, let's go for another. And then a kind of a gag that I love in this is when he's got the two dresses and it very much like makes a joke at the form of the film being in black and white and asks like one of the crew, uh, which dress do you want to go for? Like the blue or the green one? And he's like, "Oh well, well I'm colorblind, so maybe the darker gray one." And it's like <laughs> stuff like that that I've kind of like picked up on like this this most recent watch kind of. Uh, and I think yeah, the film is beautifully captures um, that element of just trying to make stuff. And like mm-hmm. I've, I've done it throughout my life, like whether it's like music or. What, yeah whatever even even like just like kind of like going out there give it a good old try and like you might you like i don't know like fingers crossed in 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 my death people may go look back and go you know what? he's all right that guy he wasn't uh. Uh, well, hopefully before then yeah yeah, yeah. but like, <laughs> like there's there's all, there's always a always a hope that you yeah i mean you know being reminded of just how everyone's kind of in the same boat really with stuff um my main kind of timber and story is i was an extra on dark shadows for a day um way back when um and it was only about a year i've been doing sort of backgrounding for like a year or supporting artists as they're more <laughs> commonly known now and to this day this was the most impressive set i'd ever been on so it was the main heart like 70s boston type harbor set from dark shadows mm-hmm. all built on wooden stilts in the back lot of pinewood and i was on there as like a replacement for some other extra so i had to kind of get into his probably still sweaty um outfit <laughs> as this kind of photojournalist for the day um and fantastic so you know speaking again of stephanie schwartzman with production design you know and art department stuff you know this was just an incredible recreation because it had like winding streets a high street a cinema cars on it and it's all just on wooden stilts basically all all leading to the water tank where the harbor was um and i'm in this very brief scene where i'm one of a gaggle of um photojournalists taking a photo of michelle pfeiffer as she opens up the plant the like factory on the waterfront and in the film itself <laughs> the shot with us in isn't even an isn't even there <laughs> um it's like it's like a wide and we're around the corner and we can see as our flash bulbs 
But I remember like being standing around at one point and Tim Burton was there in his chair and he, we just had to wait for a plane overhead to go away. And it felt like something that, you know, me, Liam and Paul had dealt with like a lot making our little films where it was, you know, we'd be out in a field or on a public street. We'd have to wait for a car, you know, a noisy car to stop going past or, or a plane overhead for sound. And seeing, you know, Tim Burton like in this tiny area of a huge set on Pinewood having to do the exact same thing of just like hold for plane and just kind of watching him sat there like sort of tapping his fingers for a minute and being like, do, 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 time is money. Uh, and then like, okay, go. I was like, you know, filmmaking's all the same no matter what scale you're on. So as we start to like wrap up the conversation, something you mentioned there that we should definitely mention soon is what the Coppola connection was involved in uh, is <laughs> the production design, the kind of, and and yeah. the general look of this film what do you like i i personally think it like it looks beautiful and that's from like tim burton's choice of angles but the even down to the the way that the film is like um i don't know like just the look of it it like you, yeah. you feel like you're in 1950s la right yeah like you know it's a film set in 50s uh sort of shot like a 50s film you know not least the black and white but also the extreme kind of harsh contrast in the lighting and um i recently rewatched batman returns for sun double deep which was a film i'd always kind of liked but this rewatch um maybe it was watching it on daryl's 4k edition on his giant <laughs> tv really just brought out how fucking great a film that is and just how good it looks and i think i can't remember if we say on the episode or if we were just talking to each other as we were watching it you know like films these days don't get this contrast of of dark and light right. You either go fully natural light and then dark scenes are just pitch black or everything's overlit uh, or colored weird. But Batman Returns has so many scenes set in dark places, be it the Batcave or Penguin's Lair or wherever, where you can see everything, um, whether it's in the foreground or background. But it's clearly a dark scene, but it's just lit so well. And Edward, you know, being the film he does directly afterwards, uh, takes that kind of one step further by being fully black and white and being able to play with these shadows. And, you know, when, when Ed's at Lugosi's house um, and he's going a bit nuts and he's got like the gun in his hand and there's these kind of wild angles and it's very, goes very hard on the shadows there. Um, it just feels like this was like a dream for Burton to do. Mm. Um, and yeah, I kind of wish he'd do something else either set in this sort of time period or, not saying to do a sequel or anything, but you know, another film from Burton's eye about fifties Hollywood or or thirties horror even or something like that. I mean, you know, he gets kind of um he, he gets to be sometimes a butt of a joke of, you know, you can tell a Burton film by null trees and, <laughs> and shadows and and Eva Green or Helen Bon Carter being there. Um but you know the guy's got a style, and and it really works. And when it works, and I think I think he's someone who's always as strong as as the the script and the story he's paired with. Um, but when he's got a good one, as it is in here, he can he can really deliver. And I think he's he's someone with a true visual aesthetic and and uh, directorial style, which is you know semi semi rare these days, where more and more things are becoming slightly more homogenized. Well, I think it's that thing, like and. Some people get confused of like what a director's job is to some degree. Like either people like kind of go in two camps. They either think that like they are this like wonderkind who has managed to just like they did it all. Do you know what I mean? Like or like they're the people like oh would it like 
what, what, what do they actually do? but it's this thing that they all all they are is just great taste finders do you know what i mean it's like the yeah the thing of managing to be able to go this product th- th- this this kind of head of this department this head of this department getting these people together to kind of and and the trust in that and I think this film really does convey that really well because it very much yeah. feels like everyone down to the kind of howard shaw score that again is yeah beautifully depicts this era and like the use of um, theremins and like bongos and stuff like that very like evokes that time or yeah it's like the, the production design and stuff like that like the cinematography is like yeah it's, yeah it's, it's all like very much in keeping and it's that thing of like tim burton like i like I, I kind of like there is a point when i think it's around sleepy hollow i kind of mm. disembark the tim burton yeah, yeah. train and like but like, yeah this very much feels like a film where I don't know. It feels like every, every department has managed to kind of click together to kind of the the vision works. It's not yet jumped into that. I don't know CGI, Burton like aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, as much you know, as much I've been saying, you know, Burton style. Obviously, I do mean his his team, of course, because yeah, you know, Danny Elfman, you know, not present here, but obviously big part of uh, his movies, and Colleen Atwood, long time. Uh, costumer and um, yeah, Chris Levinson as well, longtime editor. So he's someone who you know has his team in place, and there's a lot of collaboration, repeat collaboration going on there. Not least of all, a lot of his roster of actors. Um, but I think you know that's they're the guys that kind of you know bring his films to life. But I think you know what makes a, a real Burton film is his sensibility of of you know of the weirdo, of the outsider. You know he, that's very much him, and I think the stories that most lean into that. Are the ones that often are the most successful, you know, and you you got you got blips depending on your opinion on stuff like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which you know has Depp as this weird kind of outsider guy. On paper, it's very much a Burton kind of character, but you know, for many reasons, that film doesn't quite <laughs> hit it off. But you know, when you've got stuff like Edward Scissorhands and this and and Sleepy Hollow and Beetlejuice and his Batman's, like they, there's a very you know clear through line between them all of the type of characters he's interested in and, and the, the stories, you know, you know, you know, with that Batman returns rewatch, it's like, this is a film about three costumed freaks having a whale of a time, <laughs> <laughs> um, running a mock goth- Gotham city, you know, they're, they're doing what they love. <laughs> so you love to see it. Amazing. So let's kind of talk about how this film ends and the kind of like resolution we get. Um, so obviously, yeah, <clears throat> at the end, we finally get, the premiere of Plan 9 from Out Space and we get this beautiful shot of like the whole the whole kind of like roster of weirdos he's assembled throughout the film as it kind <laughs> of like pans down through the cinema and you get Edward delivering like mouthing along to the speech that like Bella Bella Lugosi gives and I, I just want to play that speech when he delivers it in the street because it's it's a real high point of this film for me. Home. I have no home. Haunted. Despised. Living like an animal. The jungle 
is my home. But I shall show the world that I can be its master. I shall perfect my own race of people. A race of atomic supermen that will conquer the world. So, yeah, what do you make of the kind of, like, final act and the way this film wraps up? It's really cool. Like, I, it feels like a lot of these films kind of end with some kind of premiere or, you know, because The Disaster Artist kind of ends almost the same way with the premiere of The Room and, you know, Tommy Wiseau slowly realising that they're mocking it and, and kind of how broken he is mm-hmm. with that and how he decides in that moment to kind of accept it and pretend that's kind of what it was, which is kind of sad all in its own way. And um, yeah, there's a real, I think, I think seeing people watch along to their own films and mouth along is kind of a real shorthand for showing, you know, how much they care and how much they kind of, it doesn't quite matter about the outside response. And that kind of feels like the way this one goes with, with him kind of just running off right afterwards and, you know, going off to Vegas to get married uh, to Patricia Arquette. Um, But it's great, yeah, to see all these kind of guys lined up and, and the little moments of joy, like in Tor Johnson's face of seeing his, his, credit come up on screen and and you know i think you feel that a lot where it's that sense of achievement finally kind of coming in of like oh this is the fruit of everything and it's kind of and i think that's it's been a while since i've seen it now but i think that's kind of how dolomite ends as well where it's like you know it doesn't really matter how this is received now we did this like we did this yeah. this is our this is our victory like anything else now is uh, is bonus and that is kind of the feeling of when you finally bloody finish something and screen it for people it's like you know if we can be proud of this then that's that's something and just getting here has been hard enough (laughs) well there's kind of three beats throughout this film and it kind of like they punctuate so like we start with a kind of premiere of a play we kind of have that middle Mm. point like where they go to the premiere of the like uh the sci-fi do you know what i mean like the the uh monster of the atom the bride of the monster Yeah, yeah yeah oh yeah yeah like when he when he does that and that is all that one like both of those first two are all about either critical reception or audience reception Mm -hmm. that second one we just get the audience like kind of going fucking wild like grabbing at vampire like like throwing popcorn and chasing them out like their cars getting wrecked and stuff like that and what's beautiful about that ending for me is the fact that all that matters it's those guys like they've achieved yeah. what they wanted to achieve like and- well yeah Ed, ed's done what he wanted to do which was you know to turn it around um through his uh, meeting of orson you know and be re-inspired to to make it his way and if you that's the hardest thing to do to make something your way of no compromises because you know filmmaking is constant compromise <laughs> and try and problem solving and stuff but if you can stick to your guns in the way that matters um it kind of doesn't matter what other people think of it. And I think that's kind of the the vibe Ed has at the end there, where you don't quite get a sense of whether he knows it's bad or it will go down as one of the worst films ever. But at that moment, he's like, I've done it. I've done it the way I wanted it. Um, I can, you know, walk out of this cinema, this premiere happy and um, yeah, go straight into what I want to do next, which is, you know, getting hitched. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So before we get out of here, is there, is there anything I feel like we've missed when talking about this film. Um, I don't know. I think I think you know. I think I wish more people checked it out. Like I don't think it's um, underseen at all or, or underplayed. But you know, I think in terms of uh, Burton's filmography, you know, you you might think of the Beetlejuice and Batman's first, and then maybe some of the recent you know 
misfit uh, mis uh, misfires later and then this one does feel like it gets semi lost in the shuffle when really i think once you ask many people who have seen all his films or is a burton fan it, it it's usually unanimously top three top five somewhere up there um so yeah it's it's a weird one to say i'd like to see get a reappraisal because i think people know it's great but um yeah, there's never there's never too much. There's not many articles being written about it. I guess we're coming up to like its thirtieth anniversary in a few more years, so maybe there'll be some more highlights there. Um, I guess yeah, it's all tricky now with everything with Depp going on. So yeah, let's yeah. But, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the, I'm sure the Guardian will have some scathing review r- review about it. <laughs> yeah, or maybe you get pulled up on one of those like here's this why this film you like is shit yeah. articles, uh, <laughs> and that'll just kick off. <laughs> Amazing. So before we get into scoring this film, I always like to ask my guest if they manage to find any Coppola connections between this film, whether people who are in it or worked on it appear anywhere else in the kind of Coppola filmography. Yeah, I've got some here that I'm sure may have popped up in other episodes, but obviously Patricia Arquette is in Edward, <laughs> who's married to Cage. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's in Honeymoon in Vegas with both Cage and the Godfather's James Caan. Can James Caan. Um, so this editor, yeah, Chris LeBenzen, is Burton's long-term editor. He also edited Midnight Run with De Niro from Godfather 2 <laughs> and Gone in 60 Seconds with Cage. And Juliet Landau was in Theodore Rex with Carol Kane, who was in Dog Day Afternoon with Pacino and John Cazale, who were both in The Godfather. <laughs> so a lot of it circles around to The Godfather, basically. Perfect. Um, I'll rattle through a few. I've got, obviously, Bill Murray is in pretty much every Wes Anderson film. We're not going to go through yep. them all here. Um, Ned Bellamy, who plays uh, Dr. Tom, who kind of fills in for Bella Lugosi, is also in Being John Malkovich and Con Air. Uh, Martin Landau himself is in Ed TV, which John Schwartzman, Stephanie's brother, was the DOP, and is in mm-hmm. Tucker, The Man and His Dreams, which was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, hmm. G.D. Spaulding is in The Godfather Part 2 and Apocalypse. Now, Vincent D'Onofrio is in Jurassic World, which uh, yes. I covered recently on the podcast, which again is DOP'd by John Schwartzman. And... Mike Starr, the fantastic Mike Starr, who kind of plays this like no nonsense. Hey, I just make crap over here. Like film <laughs> yeah. producer is in um, New York Stories, the um, kind of portmanteau film that Francis Ford Coppola made with mm. um, another director, and uh, uh, I can't actually think of the third one. I don't want to mention the other one because he's. A- <laughs> um, <laughs> That that guy, Mike Starr, he does great shouting down the phone yeah. with a big wagging finger energy because he does the exact same thing 15 years later in Black Dynamite, uh, incredible comedy. He's like, I want him dead now. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's in Snake Eyes as well. And like, I haven't like, it's, it's on my list to rewatch because I've been on a big De Palma like, kick at the moment. But like... Uh, I can I can only imagine that Mike Starr in that is again he's he's shouting at somebody. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> that's that's all we've got for connections for this episode. And um, I always like to score films by asking what would be the perfect wine pairing for this film. Yeah. Well, so this was something I wrote down for our first take record. So let's see if I can even reread my own writing. But I'd go with the 1955 
Louis M. Martini Cabernet Sauvignon Special Selection, uh, which is a medium dark red violet colour with clarity. Perfect. That <laughs> so like... keep, keep it in the 50s. Yeah, it, it, it feels very much like a, a, a red wine film, not just because obviously Bella Lugosi was famous for playing Count Dracula, but it's, I don't know, it manages to... It manages to deal with some like really like big subjects, whether they're kind of existential subjects of being a creative, obviously subjects of I don't know, almost like trans rights or kind of any and like it, this feels like it could be an uh, an anthem or like what would that be? Yeah, like four kind of outsiders out there, and it's very much yeah, like yeah. The, the drum tim burton has been beating for yeah be like you know find the people who accept you ignore the ones that don't and um be yourself it's all it's all positivity in this film perfect um and yeah like would you say this is a bottom shelf middle shelf or top shelf wine oh this is top shelf yeah top shelf wine top shelf movie and um based on this film alone are they the greatest film family of all time? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously <laughs> Stephanie's Stephanie's part here is a small one, but but crucial. And, and the department she's in is is firing on all cylinders here. So you know, if we've only got Stephanie's talents to go by, then yeah, there's nothing they can't do. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, which leads me perfectly on to a little section at the end where I ask some qu- a couple of questions, which I'm glad I'm asking instead of. Uh, answering uh the first of which being which coppola family member would you keep but in doing so you get rid of the filmography mm. of the entire rest of the family it's really tough because if we avoid kind of butterfly effect uh principles of erasing somebody might erase other people anyway um i'd keep probably jason schwartzman just because i really enjoy his films um you know, everything he does with Wes Anderson and outside of that as well, um, from you know, from Scott Pilgrim to Bored to Death across film and TV. Um, I think I can, you know, live without a couple of really, really seminal crime films, <laughs> um, gangster films, you know, as sacrilegious as this is, to to keep this quite eclectic uh career of a guy I just really enjoy whenever he's on screen. Perfect. I I I like your selfish nature, the way you answered that question. That's that's what I love the most on this podcast. And you've got a wealth of stuff to get through there as well. I think like full on screen time, and this sounds crazy, like speak about this in the same breath as Nick Cage, but like he is like Jason Schwartzman has been in the most amount of stuff, like kind of coupled with his film output and TV. Like, do you mean like yeah. three whole seasons of a sitcom? He pops up in, um, yeah, like a, a, gr- a great sitcom that was kind of co co made by him, uh, Roman Coppola and uh, Paul White's the director. The, the, yeah, I might be getting that wrong, but the director of Being Flynn, uh, the, mm. the Paul Dano film. So yeah, so like yeah, there's so much, so much to get into, and obviously, would would the OC have been such a great series without <laughs> that, without, without, that, without that contribution of the theme song? Yeah. yeah. Um, he's yeah he's someone who feels like he's got a lot more to give as well and like you know it feels weird saying it'd be good to see him in a really dramatic part because a lot of his stuff is dramatic and not just purely mm -hmm. comedic like um his work with alex ross perry is always really cool but to see him in something 
semi against type or or dark or or just really or like a, a playing a playing a real person or something it feels like schwartzman is untapped in many ways as well um because he's kind of got this youthful uh charm to him and um yeah i can't you know i can't quite think of any recent or what he's up to recently you know so i'm, I'm all up for like the schwartzman comeback obviously i guess he's in the french dispatch isn't yeah. he with which has been delayed um but yeah it feels like there's multiple different ways to use him in stuff that hasn't been used like seeing him as the flat out villain in scott pilgrim was great <laughs> and it kind of tapped into his kind of um like hips to cred there as well as part of that film but yeah it feels like you could do anything with him and nobody really really is they yeah. kind of using him as he has been i, I think the, the last thing i saw him in in the cinema and it was a joy to see his face because it is just a talking head of him was the sparks brothers the fantastic all oh, right yeah Edgar Wright, um documentary and i won't spoil it but there's a great like kind of connection to a film that will be covered on this podcast that kind of uh is mentioned in that film and i know he's going to be in um at like a new animated film the director's name escapes me right now but the film's called crypto zoo i think again recently mm. got its like uk premiere at the um sundance london but like mm. again another like the director also did a film with jason schwartzman that was called like my high school is sinking into the sea or something like that so like this yeah that's good that's good yeah. so so that's so yeah i think he's got so much more to come so that's a, that's a perfect uh, yeah, perfect. and he seems perpetually thirty-three yeah. years old. Yeah, <laughs> outside of Rushmore, it's like he's always just the same age. Yeah, <laughs> like if you see him in Darjeeling Limited and something from this year, you'd be like, I don't know that fifteen odd years have passed. It's, you know? it's disgusting. Yeah, as I said, when I saw him in the Smart <laughs> I was like, Why do you look so fresh-faced? So beautiful. <laughs> um, so on to the last question, uh, which is possibly the most important question on the podcast: is what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost mm. in Translation. Take Disney to the cleaners for me. <laughs> I, I, I've been waiting for somebody to reference that. Yes, thank you. Yes, amazing. Yeah, it's it's that or I've I've, I've got a good lawyer if you ever may need one. <laughs> amazing. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming and making some Coppola connections with me. Um, where can people find you on all the podcasts you're, you're spread over? Where's the best place to kind of keep up to date with all of that? Oh boy. Well, yes, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Brothers 2, where I mostly tweet and retweet all three of these pods, <laughs> which are Sun Double Deep, the Triple Bill title podcast, which releases weekly, where we cover three films linked by word in the title. There's Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast from a non-Trekkie perspective, where we cover all aspects of the Star Trek universe. Um, coming up, if not out already, there will have been uh, an episode on Star Trek Enterprise, uh, an episode picked out by Cam Smith from Spy Hearts, um, flying the flag for old Enterprise there, and a sort of retrospective look at Richard Donner's film Inside Moves, because we managed to interview him in 2017 and we were very saddened by his passing and he always wanted Inside Moves to be the film more people saw and to this day it's nearly impossible to uh, access and source um, but we gave that a watch finally um, to try and honour him there and it's a very good film, very good discussion as well 
Um, and then Is Paul Dano Okay is the podcast I do with Daryl Bear from Sun Double Deep, where we're going through Paul Dano's, Paul Dano, <laughs> his entire filmography to see if he does get beaten up in everything he's in. Uh, and is he okay? So we will have just wrapped up our second season that releases in sort of eight to ten episode seasons. Um, so we would have just finished that looking at Prisoners with special guest Stephen Trumbull, um, which is obviously a big one for for. <laughs> Is Dano okay? Um, and then, yeah, we'll have a little a little uh, hiatus. We'll cover the second half of War and Peace, the BBC miniseries he was in, in that break, and then come back for season three, beginning of November. So, yeah. So, yeah, Spotlight is kind of monthly. Sun Double Deep is weekly. And Dano drops in season. So it's a good a good spread of all, of all three shows there. Well, again, Matt, thank you so much for coming and making some Coppola connections with me. Thank you so much for having me, man. And there we go. We finally got there. It's been a few months in the making. Uh, if I hadn't been an idiot and audio file, we would have been a-okay. But it feels perfect. It feels very much in the of Ed that we that we had that kind of reshoots for the. A massive thank you again to Matt Brothers for joining me. And that is another notch on the Coplers being the greatest film family of all time. Who would have thought it, guys? It feels like they're, they're steaming ahead at the moment. But, but then again, we haven't got to any of the real bad Coppola film. As for next week on the podcast, we will be diving back into the wonderful world of Nicolas Cage and heading to Samurai Town as we look at Sion Sono's 2021. I, I don't even know how to describe this film, but it is Prisoners of the Ghostland, where I'll be joined by Ben Challoner of formerly of Sudden Double Deep. He was uh, he was the 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 third wheel before Matt joined the podcast. And uh, yeah, Ben's got some amazing stuff coming up. But he's just a fantastic guy, and he's a massive fan of Sion Sono and kind of East Asian cinema. So he's the perfect person to speak to about this. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so on Patreon or Coffee. There are links in the show notes. And as always, if you could leave a rating, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, it would be greatly appreciated. I bloody love it. So as always, I've been your host, Petros Patsilovis, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. Remember... To keep it caged in, and I'll catch you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copa Connections. A Drip Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network, it's family. <laughs>